we stand for a moment while we pray? Lord, we thank you that you are a speaking God and that you have revealed who you are in your word. Lord, would you encourage our hearts tonight with all that we learn about you? And may we leave this place with hearts genuinely full of worship. Amen. Please do take your seats. Those that know me well will know that my voice does sound slightly different. I'm recovering from a cold. It doesn't hurt. It's just a bit croaky, so you don't need to worry about me. I wonder, have you ever, have you ever found yourself envying someone else's spirituality? I wonder if you're even sure that you know what true spirituality looks like. I traveled up to um, Scotland a couple of weeks ago. I took some days off work and I had a reunion with some old school friends. And our two days together included what is for us the usual mix of miles and miles of walking, inevitably getting lost, spending a bit of time looking for huge sticks to fight off aggressive cows, and hours and hours and hours of talking. But our get-togethers are not always without tension, at least in my heart, that's the case. You see, we always have been an opinionated bunch, but some of the ideas that used to bind us together, we don't share anymore, and a lot of life has happened since leaving school. And we first hung around together, I suppose, as 16-year-olds. One thing we do have in common is actually the same thing that divides us, and that is that we're all quite interested in what it looks like to flourish spiritually. But here's the thing. Out of the five of us that met up together, three aren't Christians and are actually quite set against organized religion. So you can see where the tension is. So when I say my friends are interested in developing a, a healthy spirituality, the ingredients for them might include yoga, mindfulness, swimming in freezing cold water, and apparently it has to be freezing cold to actually do anything good, primal chanting, and even eating or not eating certain foods. Now, I actually am quite, um, quite into open water swimming, but for me, the water has to be at least 15 degrees. The idea that there is a certain way to live is gone from our culture, isn't it? Well, gone from our culture at large. And the concept of absolute truth is abhorrent to many. But there does remain still in many an appetite to find a form of spirituality that for some will fill the emptiness, for others will bring a, a, piece of, a sense of peace and calm to a soul buffeted by a troubled world, and for others will, will add a layer of meaning to their lives and well-being. Now, those of us here tonight who are Christians would say that my friends are looking for spiritual well-being in the wrong place. Not because there's necessarily anything wrong with any of those things I listed, any of those things that they're into, but because in and of themselves, those things that they do and don't do won't carry them any closer into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because for the Christian, 
true spirituality isn't rooted in techniques, but in a relationship with Jesus. But you know, it is possible, even for Christians within the body of the church, to get caught up in, in practices, in ways of doing things that are hollow and even deceptive and actually distract from Christ rather than deepening our relationship with him. And that's what Paul passionately exposes in our passage tonight. So let's read the first couple of verses. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Now this young church seems to have within it a group who are promoting false teaching and a bit of a hodgepodge of beliefs had developed. It seems from some of these verses that these false teachers were Jews who had assimilated certain ideas and practices from Eastern mystic religions that were becoming popular in the, um, the Roman world at that time. Now whether this is accurate or not, there is consensus that these false teachers were part of the church. At its heart, this false teaching pronounced that there was a way to achieve a superior spirituality or closeness with God by abstaining from certain food and drink, as well as religiously observing certain festivals and holy days. Now on top of that, they advocated a kind of mysticism that was not rooted in Christ along with the idea that denying the body some of its basic needs would also pave the way for a deeper knowledge of God. Now, that these young Christians were hungry for a deeper knowledge of God is obviously great. But Paul warns that they were being encouraged or maybe even shamed into doing it the wrong way. And the wrong way, we are going to learn, is any suggested pattern of spiritual development that does not have Christ at its heart. Do not let others, writes Paul, take away your joy and freedom in Christ by pointing you back to expired and out-of-date regulations that were given to the people of God before Christ came. Now, if you or sitting here tonight uh, and you are a new or, or a not yet Christian, or maybe you're reading through the Bible or, or hearing Bible teaching for the first time, you might need a bit of help here. Why did God lay down such prescriptive ways of living in the Old Testament and then seem to say in the New Testament that the rules don't count anymore? Well, I think the key to unlocking the answer is the word shadow. And I really like the way Richard Chin explains it. He writes, Nothing is wrong with the Sabbath and various Old Testament rituals, but all the good and righteous rituals that God established were only ever pointing to Jesus, and he has come. To relate to the old covenant laws today would be like ignoring your friend and relating only to their shadow. Therefore, says Paul, why are you allowing yourself to be judged by people saying that you need Jesus, who is the new way, as well as the old way? 
Paul is urging these new Christians to let go the old patterns of behavior that pointed to our need for a savior and hold on to the savior himself. Christ is enough. It's quite difficult to fathom, isn't it, why these believers would even be tempted to revert back to a rule-based religious system. But maybe, maybe it shows the difficulty that we all have as human beings with the very concept of grace. Sam Storms, in his book, The Hope of Glory, writes, there is a sense in which divine grace will always be a threat to human nature. Why a threat, you ask? Because grace undermines our efforts to justify ourselves. Grace runs counter to human pride. And that impulse we all feel to boast in our own accomplishments. Grace demands just one thing, that all glory and honor and credit be given to Jesus Christ for what he has done and not for what we have done. And human nature instinctively hates that. You know, we sing song after song at church, praising and thanking God for the beauty and the wonder of his grace. But do we actually struggle sometimes to live in the light of it? Some of us might be more preoccupied with the must-dos and do-nots in the Christian life than we care to admit, and are thus vulnerable to robbing ourselves, as well as others, of the joy of following a saviour who has achieved the highest standards of holiness in our place, that we might have freedom from fear of failure and judgment, and hope in a glorious future that rests entirely, entirely, on what Christ has already done, and not at all on our own achievements. Those of you here tonight who are already Christians, just ask yourself, do you really believe that Christ is enough? Or do you sometimes impose behaviors on yourself, and if you don't stick to them, think that you've let God down? Maybe you've fallen behind in your big ambition to read the Bible in a year. You didn't manage to fast on that day that you really intended to. You failed to pray for that person every day this week that you really meant to. Or if you do stick to them, do you feel quite smug and feel like you're doing quite well with God? We all need to remember, don't we, that if we are in Christ, there's nothing we can do to make God love us more and there's nothing we can do to make him love us less because it's all about what Christ has already done. When Paul writes, don't let anyone judge you, he's not saying it in the way that secular society often means it today, as in the extremely individualistic, you do you, and don't worry what others say. Because actually there is a time and a place and a way for Christians to challenge one another. In this case, though, Paul is saying that the ones passing judgment are quite frankly in the wrong. Paul is writing against a culture of legalism that had crept into this young church that was unbiblical and anti-grace. But I think many of us have a tendency to legalism. And by that I mean we have in our heads 
what a Christian should be like. And then we judge others and ourselves based on how well they or we measure up to that picture. And church history would bear this out, that over the centuries, certain things have surfaced as tests of what makes a good Christian. Around the globe in churches today, the genuineness of a person's faith might be measured by whether or not they drink alcohol, whether or not they smoke, what music they enjoy, how they dress, the company they keep, how much they serve or don't serve, whether or not they speak in tongues or raise their, their hands when they worship, how they vote or their theological position on non-salvation issues in the Bible. But you know, the reality is that since New Testament times, there has been latitude in these matters, and we are free to reach our own conclusions according to our conscience and with the help of the Holy Spirit. So let's ask God, let's all of us ask God to grow in us a spirit of generosity where it doesn't undermine the gospel to differ. Let's read on. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They've lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Wow, Paul really does have a lot to say here about the character of these influences within the church, and we'll explore that in a few moments. So Paul's already warned against legalism, which undermines the grace of God and threatens to rob these believers of their freedom and their joy in Christ. And in these verses, he warns against two further things. Fake mysticism and the notion that bodily discipline can lead to super spirituality. Remember, these young Christians were eager to grow spiritually. But again, says Paul, don't do it like this. Paul warns in these verses about a, a false spirituality that is not rooted in the worship of Christ and is that it thus utterly meaningless and futile. There were clearly people in the church suggesting that following Jesus wasn't enough to get you that close encounter with God, that they needed other supernatural experiences like visions or encounters with angels or to practice bodily deprivation in order to get really close to God. The ESV Bible translates false humility as asceticism. And asceticism is the idea that depriving yourself of your physical needs will get you brownie points before God and other people. You see, asceticism encourages a preoccupation with abstinence, almost like abstinence in and of itself is pleasing to God and will lead to greater holiness. The idea being that if you add up enough physical negatives, you'll get a spiritual positive. These enemies of grace seem to be suggesting that those who enjoyed their freedom in Christ to eat and drink within the parameters of Scripture 
would lose divine approval. Now, now self-discipline is a good thing, and it's a helpful thing when trying to avoid physical temptations that easily lead us into sin. But like many good things, taken to excess and put in the place of true worship, it becomes a worthless idol, and it takes us away from the blessings that we have in Christ. And that blessing includes the freedom to enjoy the physical world that God has made, to enjoy the beauty of the natural world and the good things it produces, to enjoy people and the culture they create, to enjoy marriage and sex and parenthood if that is God's will for us. It would be, stra- it would be a, a strange road to Christ-likeness to refuse the blessings that Christ has made. Yet these false teachers seem to have been peddling the lie that abstinence would lead to spiritual transformation. Now there is some debate over the the precise um, shape of this false teaching when it comes to angels. But these influences may have been encouraging the worship of angels because there was a, a real fascination with the unseen world of spirits in that part of Asia Minor at the time. And actually, maybe that's not so different from our culture today. Interestingly, I ended up on a a secular website when I was preparing for this sermon um, about spirituality. And I was absolutely bombarded by pop-ups encouraging me to get in touch with my guardian angel. I haven't done it yet, but when I do, I'll tell you all about it. But whether angels were being worshipped or maybe called upon to protect believers from evil or one of the other interpretations, Paul undermines this teaching and he suggests at the very least it's a distraction from relationship with Christ, which is where our spiritual life should be rooted. Now, Paul has as much to say about the false teachers themselves as the teaching that they were peddling. And I wonder if this is the bit that's particularly relevant for us tonight. Paul doesn't mince his words, does he? He accuses them of being unspiritual, puffed up with idle notions, having lost connection with the head. Now, puffed up suggests a sense of their own importance, maybe even arrogance, Even though they masquerade as humble, they are, in fact, arrogant. Their teaching, rather than pointing to Jesus, actually points to themselves. And they use their platform to boast endlessly about their own personal experiences. And the reason for this lack of true spirituality, they've lost connection with the head. That is Jesus. It's become all about them and nothing about Jesus. Now, sadly, this does sound like some Christian leaders who've made headlines in recent years. You may be aware of some of the cases recently where Christian leaders have been forced to step down uh, because of allegations of abusive leadership. Sadly, there are many live examples of Christian leaders have let their forceful personalities lead the way and have crushed and confused their flock en route. When Paul tells these Colossae Christians, let no one disqualify you, 
he uses a word that in ancient times often meant something like to act as an umpire against. Again, there's this idea of being judged. But Paul is saying that the judge is at fault. As Christians, we naturally and rightfully want to grow in knowledge and faith. And we do look, don't we, to those more mature than us, often spiritual leaders. We look to them to guide us. We look to them to to show how we might grow and experience the joy of knowing God. And that's why it's such a dangerous and potentially damaging thing when spiritual leaders encourage even bully their flock with false teaching. Now, if, you, if any of you have seen the film Catch Me If You Can, let me see if you're all awake. Has anyone seen the film Catch Me If You Can? Gives me one, two, three, oh, a few more. I'd say ten. You need to see Catch Me If You Can. It's very good. Anyway, if you have seen the film Catch Me If You Can, you will know that the best way to spot a fake banknote is to study the real thing. See, you learn in these films. The best way to spot a fake banknote is to study the real thing. And actually, the best way to be able to discern unspiritual spiritual leaders is by knowing what the Bible says spiritual leaders should look like. We don't have to go any further, do we, than Jesus, our head to see the real thing. True spirituality does not show off. True spirituality doesn't practice righteousness before others in order to be seen. But it flows out of a love for the Father in order to point to the Father's love. We see in our Lord Jesus himself that true spiritual leadership is servant leadership. And it's shaped by true humility and love. It might be that a church is wounded not by domineering leadership, but by a leadership that promotes a culture where there is too much emphasis on being spiritual for spiritual sake. Sadly, some churches place too much emphasis on spiritual experience, speaking in tongues, receiving words and pictures. And you can feel a poor Christian, even doubt your salvation, if you don't speak in tongues or have any or as many words and pictures as the next person. And you know, if you ever find yourself, especially maybe to to younger, newer Christians, if you ever find yourself in a church where you have to prove the validity of your faith and you have to prove your place in the people of God based on spiritual experiences, I would question the church culture. Because the fruit of real spiritual growth looks like loving Jesus and his people more. Not whether you've had an ecstatic spiritual experience. True spirituality, as we read famously in 1 Corinthians 13, always manifests itself as love. Let's read on. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teaching. 
Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. The word that really leaps out at me is why. I can hear Paul's frustration here for these young Christians in whom he's so invested. Why on earth are you living like you haven't actually met Jesus? Why are you trampling your freedom in Christ in the dirt and taking back up a mantle of slavery to rules that will not deepen your relationship with God and will take away your joy in Christ? In verse 20, Paul points them back to the full implications of Christ's death and resurrection and what it means to them as Christians. Because reflecting on that should be the basis of true worship and joy. I think one of the greatest truths of the gospel, and yet one of the hardest to grasp, is that we've, made ho- we've been made holy by Christ. You know, our acceptance before God is entirely based, entirely, on what Jesus has achieved in our place. And once we commit to following Jesus as our Lord and Savior, he takes us up into his life so that his past is our past and his future is our future. We have become part of his identity. Isn't that amazing? We are no longer chained to a defeat that we need to atone for. We are no longer under condemnation. Our death in Christ has freed us from the demonic powers of this world so that we no longer need to fear them or appease them. Jesus Christ, who he is, what he has done, and what he will do is enough. I'm always encouraged by the verse from Ephesians 1 that says that the power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that brought us to faith in the first place and is the same power at work in us today. Isn't that encouraging? Sometimes we need someone to remind us of the treasure we have as Christians, don't we? Not to belittle the struggles that we might be contending with, which may be considerable even tonight, but to encourage us that we have a powerful saviour who is on our side, helping us in the battle and growing us, sanctifying us day by day. Something these advocates for false spirituality probably wouldn't have acknowledged is that sometimes God works through the tough things we face in this life, the periods of suffering, to show his love and power and to draw us closer to him. We might have looked at a lot of do do nots tonight, but actually, what a joyful reminder this part of Colossians is as to the freedom that we have in Christ, who has achieved for us what we could never have done for ourselves. Now, I began by asking, 
if you've ever found yourself envying someone else's spirituality. Well, I did, especially in the early days after coming to faith as a teenager and not being from a Christian family. I was in a, a far more charismatic church, which I have to say I absolutely loved. And I was fascinated by people who seemed to, some people who seemed to have really ecstatic worship experiences. And I think, I, looking back, I probably felt like I needed that kind of supernatural encounter to be sure that God was real and that I was really saved. Now, just to make absolutely clear, I do not doubt that the Lord in his wisdom does sometimes give people such a glimpse of his glory that they are momentarily captivated. But I was looking for certainty and joy in the wrong place. The answer to becoming more spiritual isn't to look within ourselves and to crave certain experiences, but to look outward and upward at Jesus and all he has accomplished. Our spiritual confidence should be based not on feelings, but in the word of God that says that if we have chosen to follow Christ, we have received the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until Christ comes again to redeem us. Now, some of you might be more prone to comparing yourselves unfavorably with others who seem to be more disciplined. And maybe you often feel discouraged by your own inability to stick to what you aspire to do or not do in pursuit of a deeper relationship with the Lord. I would encourage you to look again at Jesus, our head, who gifts us with his perfect record of obedience and asks simply, that we thank him as our spiritual worship. I'm going to end with a quote from Dane Ortland, which I found really helpful. He writes, Only the gospel tells us to be free by acknowledging our failure. Christianity is the unreligion because it is the one faith whose founder tells us not to bring our doing, but our need. So let me read that again. Only the gospel tells us to be free by acknowledging our failure. Christianity is the unreligion because it is the one faith whose founder tells us to bring not our doing, but our need. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that once we're grafted into your family through faith, you hold us fast. It is your power at work in us that increases our appetite for closeness with you and helps us to grow in faith and hope and love. Thank you that we simply need just to stay connected with you, our head, the source of all spiritual life. Help us, gracious Lord, to do just that. Amen.